Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your comments on tennis. About 24 hours ago, I posted in the YouTube community tab, and over a hundred of you left comments. I think that might be a record, so I just want to take this time to thank you guys. This is really awesome, and I really enjoy doing these. And your part, obviously, it wouldn't be possible without your participation because it's a mailbag. Um, okay, so really good stuff here. I am excited. Um, and we will start with Jared Gonzalez, who says, Of the next generation of players, Berrettini seems the most consistent on each surface. He has the power to hit through clay and slow hard courts, the serve for fast courts and grass, and also a really nice slice backhand to keep the ball low on grass. Do you agree? Is his talent on the same level as Tsitsipas, Zverev, and Shapovalov? So first, Berrettini is so underrated. I just want to throw that out there. And I was thinking about this earlier this week. He just doesn't have the buzz around him that he probably should. And maybe that's because he's a bit of a late bloomer. And he wasn't overly relevant until clay court season and then even more so grass court season last year where he started doing a lot of winning and people started to take notice of Matteo Berrettini to a, to a greater extent. But yeah, he is so undersold. Like people just don't group him into this younger generation of players, which he so thoroughly deserves to be grouped in. And in terms of his game, the one thing that that probably goes underlooked, first of all, I've said this many times, your serve, a big serve and a big forehand will take you a really long way in this game. And Zverev, Zverev, Berrettini's serve plus one combination is is tops. It's elite. And that'll take you so far in itself. Um, he does have a nice slice, which is more effective on some surfaces than others. The topspin backhand is just not quite as solid. But here's the one thing that people undersell, I think, about his game is his movement. He, It's another thing. Now, he's not a defensive player. So a lot of people don't like to talk about Berrettini's movement. But he's got good quickness, good foot speed. He gets up to balls quickly. And he also has good footwork on his runaround forehand, which is very important for him because the forehand is an absolute hammer to use his UTS nickname. So that that's something that people don't give him enough credit for. Berrettini's legit. 
He's legit. I don't know if it's maybe because his play style isn't as attractive to watch for people. Maybe that's why he's underrated. I don't know. Next comment comes from Adil McDonald. Thoughts on Roberto Carbias uh, Baena's win over Denis Shapovalov. I watched a lot of the fifth set of this one, and it was like some of the best and most captivating tennis I've seen uh, over the course of the first week of Roland Garros. Ultimately, what this match really encapsulated is the kind of trend I'm seeing with players who are really willing to play great defense, do a lot of running, and keep the ball in the court and, and grind. It is 100% a... These are, these are conditions where clearly, just by looking at some of the players who have advanced in this draw up all the way up to the third round, this is clearly conditions where clay court specialists in the traditional sense can thrive in. And that's just because this court is so difficult to hit through that elite defense and high shot tolerance are really lethal weapons here. And that's something that Carbias Baena was able to take advantage of against Shapovalov this is going to sound crazy, but Dennis went to the net over a hundred times in this match, and it wasn't really enough. He should have been up there more because that is, that's what was working. And from the back of the court, the consistency wasn't there, and Carbias uh, Baena were, was able to make Dennis just play the extra balls. And Chapo just had these blips. He wasn't steady enough. He made a, an obscene number of unforced errors. You make over... I don't want to guess on the number. He made an obscene number of unforced errors. And he served for the match twice, and he choked, and part of that was uh, a a call that he got upset with, which was, in my opinion, a ball that was probably out. And and hear me out on this, because they checked the mark. The chair umpire looked at the mark and said, okay, it's in. Um... It was on Chapo's side of the court. It was called in. Really thought it was out. If you look at the margin of error for, for Hawkeye, it's 3.6 millimeters. This was, I want to say, like 6, 7 millimeters out. So I understand that with clay and the way the surface is, the margin for error on Hawkeye can actually be perhaps greater. And that's a conversation for another day. I will talk about Hawkeye on clay at greater length in the future, I think, because uh, I really need to cover that in depth. But I know that the margin of error can be wider, but is it that much bigger? Is a ball that's six to seven millimeters out on Hawkeye, was that ball really in? Really? I don't know. And when I saw it live, I also thought it was out, but that's uh, a weaker argument, I'd say. Um, Chapo was really upset. Uh, I know he missed, you know, a really easy mid-court forehand, and then another forehand. Two unforced errors there, serving for the match. And then in the next game, he served for it again. But ultimately, Carbias Baena, what a grind. I mean, go back and watch that. It was really fun to watch him just grind from the back of the court, and it was just classic dirt balling, clay court grinding. It was a lot of fun and a really good match. Ultimately, I think what I was getting at in the beginning of that answer is... My hypothesis that the big hitters were going to love this here because they're the only ones who can create offense 
it doesn't seem to be correct. Uh, I think I was a little off there. Not that my predictions have been horrid or anything. And I mean, I did have Shapo going in the semifinals, so that one was off. And Rublev, who I had going into the quarters, is now probably my favorite in that in that quarter that Shapo lost in. Uh, but that was kind of wrong because it turns out no one can really hit through the court. Stan couldn't even hit through the court. That's what we're seeing here. We are seeing that if someone is willing, if someone's a really good mover and they're keeping the ball in the court, it's really difficult to beat them. You know, if you can't, if you can't tango with, with the grinder. So that's kind of what we're learning here. What about a quarterfinal between Nadal and Sinner? To me, the Agassi backhand of Sinner could really harm Nadal, especially in these weather conditions in which the ball won't bounce high, and therefore the young Italian will be able to explode on his powerful backhand. Uh, favorite pattern of Nadal um, could favor his opponent. Any thoughts? Astute? Yeah, totally valid. I think there's a, a very clear pattern of some of the lesser players who have given Nadal the most trouble are generally righties with stronger backhands. You don't you don't see a lot of you don't see a lot of weaker uh, righty backhands losing in the dollar. And it's something I've pointed out, and it's a good observation. But Sinner's not the favorite against Verev, so I'll I'll uh, I think that's important to note here. That's a match, man. Ooh, I'm excited for that. Uh, from Sean, what are your thoughts on Vavrinka's chances? Update, never mind. Yes. Um, Stan Wawrinka losing to Hugo Gaston, the Frenchman ranked outside the top 200. Nobody saw that coming. I uh, I went back and looked at some of this match. Gaston, he's really really quick. He's an he's kind of a pint. He's an undersized player who hits with a lot of loop on the forehand side, and actually flattens out the backhand side quite a bit, and sometimes he could beat Vavrinka for pace on that side um, because it was such a changeup. But in general, look, this was, a, this was another example. This is, this is a player who has gr amazing court coverage, and in these heavy conditions, not even Stan was consistent enough to, to win this match. Too many errors. And Gaston got, made, made Stan just play too many extra balls. And I also thought the the lack of pace that sometimes Vavrinka was getting when Gaston was playing defense. He had a great kind of, he had a really good mindset on defense, did Gaston, because sometimes he would uh, he would slice it, and obviously that's kind of your deep floating ball, and Vavrinka is not the quickest player to come to net. So that was effective. But then other times when Gaston was on defense, he would actually kind of throw up a moon ball, uh, especially on the forehand side. So really good job by Gaston not um, defensively, really playing good clay court defense, high loopy cross court or, um, or continental grip defense was also excellent. And Vavrinka needs to, needs to put more balls in the court. And there's a couple times I've seen this. And I've taken so much heat for not giving Vavrinka his due. I have gotten so many comments, you know, about, you know, not respecting Vavrinka enough. Look, 
Vavrinka is a top 15 player right now. He's he's very good, but I haven't seen the Stan Vavrinka who won three majors since his knee surgeries. I, I haven't seen it. So to act like this guy's just going to come back and win the French Open this year, even though the conditions clearly or apparently favored him. And by the way, Stan was willing to say that. Stan said after his first round match that he loves the conditions and he thinks he can have a ton of success. Just because the conditions are, it doesn't mean he's ready to win the French. He's not that player anymore because he hasn't found the consistency. And there have been a couple matches where I've been really perplexed with Vavrinka's performance. And the one that just comes to mind because I thought it was a real turning point, I think, is at the U.S. Open last year when uh, when Stan lost to Medvedev and Medvedev couldn't move in that match. And I know Daniil recovered physically and made the finals, but I was watching that match and it, it was just one of those matches where Stan couldn't put the ball in the court enough to win. And this was kind of the same thing against an opponent who was willing to grind, who was really speedy. Kind of reminded me of like a lefty Noah Rubin. Or maybe a lefty, oh, I was going to say a lefty Guido Pela. Guido Pela is lefty. <laughs> Let us go to the next one. Swagat, thoughts on Tsitsipas and Rublev this tournament? Um, also, whom do you favor in a hypothetical Nadal team semifinal in these conditions? Tsitsipas had to come back from two sets to love down against Jaume Munar in the first um and so did Rublev in the first round against Sam Query. That's not very good. It's not good for, for either of them, to be honest with you. The matches have been very physical here. That's another one of my main takeaways from the first week is this is incredibly physical. And I almost think that playing Hamburg and then playing five sets in the first round, I just wonder if we're going to get a letdown. I worry about a letdown. Uh, when you're talking about Rublev and Tsitsipas. With that being said, I, I do have Rublev coming through the quarter as of now. I don't really see anyone else um, in the area who who I'm really comfortable with. And let me just take a quick look. I mean, Tsitsipas has Alizaj Bedne, and Dimitrov is in there, and he could be the, certainly be the beneficiary, but he is not... I don't... I don't really love Dimitrov on clay, and I don't think he loves himself on clay. Fuksovich is kind of the wild card here, who's just an incredibly... Again, it's been very physical. Fuksovich has been awesome. Um, he beat Albert Ramos Vinolas um, in the last round, and then upset... In the first round, Daniil Medvedev, of course, in four sets. And that's a match that I don't think there are any comments about. That's a match that it was the same thing. Fuksovich just willing to defend and defend and defend. And Medvedev had no easy path to win the points. So what Daniil needed to do really was say, okay, I'll just, man, I, I can't finish the points. I'll just, I guess, be more patient and consistent. He, he just wasn't that guy. Medvedev was not the more consistent player. He needed Marton to miss, though, because Fuksovich actually has some pop on the forehand. Sometimes it's inconsistent, but Fuksovich has that. And Medvedev 
Medvedev just never went into that mode where he was more poised than Fuksovich. So he was in big trouble. I mean, from the first set on in that match, you could tell that Medvedev was in trouble. And it never really seemed like he was going to win that match. He just seemed outmatched. And these conditions are not good for Daniil Medvedev because he uh, he he really does lack in racket head acceleration and just generating pace, which is going to be a problem on this surface. So uh, what do I think of Tsitsipas and Rublev? I, I love both of their games on clay. I worry about a letdown. Um, and I trust Rublev mentally more right now. So that's why I have Rublev coming through. I could go longer, but uh, I will leave it at that. Nadal team semifinal. Again, I, I, I stand by what I said in the beginning. I do think that it would be on team's racket, but I also don't want to underlook the monumental task that it would be for team to physically and mentally have the energy, especially if he plays an extremely, what I anticipate will be an extremely tough match against Diego Schwartzman in the quarterfinal. I, I just don't want to undersell how hard it could be for team to play his best all the way through a Sunday final. So, uh, I, I favor Nadal, but I also think that, especially if the conditions are going to be this heavy, it might be more up to how well Dominic plays versus how well Rafa plays. Next one from George. I noticed that Rafa, though playing super well and dominating, cannot exploit what usually makes him stronger high bounce, and a little faster court. Until now, this does not show yet, but I have the feeling these factors could make him come out short compared to Djokovic and team. Especially Djokovic seems to like these conditions a lot. Do you have the same impression? And if yes, do you think Rafa has the highest chance to win the tournament? Well, if the question is, is he still my pick right now? He is. I do agree with the sentiment of your comment, which is that we really won't know what these conditions... Okay, I, I shouldn't say this as an absolute. It is very likely that we won't know what these conditions are going to do to these to the top players, Nadal, Team, and Djokovic, who, by the way, have been the only players at the top of the men's draw. When I say top, I mean, you know, the favorites. The only players who have gotten through drama-free. It seems to be really difficult for everyone else, from Rublev to Tsitsipas to Zverev, um, even to Berrettini against, uh, he played Herbert, I believe, right, in, in a tight match. I mean, it has been very, very difficult, except for these three, for those three. So the general idea that we are not going to know how these conditions are going to affect these head-to-heads head until they play each other, I, I would generally agree with that. And I just, I, I also want to, I also want to say there's so much unpredictability there that is so easy to underlook. We don't know what Nadal is going to come out and try to do against Dominic Team if, uh, if the roof is open, and especially if it's nighttime and the courts are really slow. We don't know what Nadal is going to do there. I would think Nadal would, would probably uh, be at net a lot in, in that kind of situation. So it's tough to say generally 
I am pretty on the fence about a lot of things right now because these conditions I don't think are really ideal for any of them. I think this is slower than really all all three of them would prefer. So it, it's going to be really interesting. Sorry if that was a bit wishy-washy. Wild Live won. How important is it to win efficiently in the early rounds of a slam? Some of the best young players are going five sets with vastly inferior players on paper, while Djokovic and Nadal are rolling in straight sets. Yeah, very similar to the point I, I just made, but how important is, is it? Extremely important. And it shows a lot of maturity when, as soon as some of these younger players can start to really roll through the beginning of slams. At the U.S. Open, Medvedev, incredibly efficient. And by the way, Dominic Team is just, he's not finding himself in any trouble recently. When's the last time he's been in trouble against, uh, against a poor opponent? It might have been in the U.S. Open in um, 2019 when he was ill and unwell. So, well, Wimbledon notwithstanding with, with Domi. Next one from Michael Neves. Has Medvedev peaked? Since the U.S. Open last year, he's had a very poor run of form. Very poor might be a little bit strong, but I just want to emphasize, one, something I've covered in the past. The playbook is out. Players know what they should be doing against Daniil Medvedev. They they do certain things against him that last summer players would not have done against him because they just hadn't quite... Basically, the secrets weren't out, and he had this... He had a very special aura of unpredictability. We always talk about aura of invincibility... Medvedev had had one of unpredictability. And now players really do know what they're going to get out of Daniil. Um my here's the one thing that um is like somewhat concerning about Daniil's overall game is it seems that some of the limitations he has are physical. And some of it is just about upper body strength and fast twitch muscle fibers and the here's here's what I'm really getting at just to just to kind of clarify the lack of pop that he has on his forehand side and more specifically the way his technique works how much of kind of shoulder rotation uh, he requires and how flat he needs to hit the ball in order to generate offense off of his forehand side if you really take a close look at his technique, he's overcompensating for a lack of physical strength. And I think he, I think he's 23. It's kind of old, you know, in terms of developing your body. So that's where you do wonder, okay, is Medvedev going to be able to clog up some of the weaknesses, some of the holes that he has? Or, you know, it's not even really a weakness. Um... As much as it's lack of strength, <laughs> and it's a it's a double entendre there when I talk about strength because it actually is about strength. The concern is that on a slow clay court, for example, Medvedev just has no no easy way for offense. That is the problem. Um, with that being said, he showed at the U.S. Open, that he is a problem for so many players. 
And when he kind of, when he's on a quick surface where he can actually punish short balls, take care of short balls, and that's the key with Medvedev. That's what you want to look at. Then he has this un, he has a spectacular combination of offense and defense. He's truly, and still is, sorry for the siren, um, he truly is one of the best backstops in tennis, one of the best defensive players in tennis. And when you throw in the serve that he has, he is still a problem for, uh, for a lot of players. So here's what I said at the beginning of the year for Medvedev. And if I can pat myself on the back, I think I've read him pretty well so far. Um, you don't need to pump the brakes on Medvedev. You don't need to be like, oh, we were wrong about Medvedev. That's totally unnecessary. Just tap the brakes. Just tap them. You don't need to slam them. He's not going to be the dominant player we saw at the end of 2019. He's not going to be that. But that doesn't mean he can't be one of the best players in the game. From your point of view, um, the speed and bouncing are... Are, is the speed and bouncing really as low um, as expected before the tournament started? I'd say yes with one caveat. It is less, uh, it's not as big a deal on center court uh, because, and especially when it's not raining. Day one was ridiculous. It was freezing and it was raining. It was the slowest thing I've, I've ever seen. So when I did my predictions after day one, I'm like, oh my God, this ball doesn't bounce. It doesn't go anywhere. It's not as bad as day one, but I'd still say it's very unique conditions. It's conditions to the likes that that I don't think we've seen in Grand Slam tennis since maybe the early 2000s at Roland Garros. Do you think the that the Zverev can't play well at Grand Slam era is over? It seems to be over. He's He's been pretty consistent. Uh, I'll leave it at that. He still has the potential to play really poorly at times, it seems. And he's just still not a very consistent player. I wouldn't slap that consistent label on him. He doesn't really deserve that label at all. Um, but mentally, I think, you know, he he's become very good at winning ugly, which is important. Man, if, uh, if there weren't sirens blaring on my street, it would just be wonderful, wouldn't it? I'm assuming you guys can hear that. Next one from Jimbo Tennis. If team wins the French, how long before you think he becomes world number one? Got to be honest with you, Jimbo. I'm just not that good at math. Can't answer it. Not good at math. I'd have to look at that. Andrew says, I know you said before you're skeptical about family coach relationship, but what do you think of Nadal and Uncle Tony's partnership? Unbelievable partnership. I mean, one of the best in the history of tennis. So, so successful, so stable, but uh, Nadal is also this personality. Um, he requires a certain level of stability and his family dynamic is, is very unique. If you read his biography, it's just, it's just a very tight knit group and they all love each other very much and it just works. That's probably, it's different than father's son though. You know, an uncle, think about your uncle and think about your father. It's it's just not, it's not close to being the same. So I will throw that out there as well. 
Do you favor an inform Rublev against Novak? Asks Kailash. I just want to see the matchup. I, I don't want to talk about that or preview that before it happens, but I'd, I'd love to see it. I really hope we see that. Ryan Locke, what is your take on the spat between Kyrgios and Vlander after Mats criticized Murray for accepting wild cards into tournaments and stopping a younger player getting in? Surely Andy is doing nothing wrong here. Yeah, this is one of the stupidest takes I've ever heard. In in tennis. I, I want to say in tennis. I've heard stupider takes in the world. But as far as like tennis takes from like an all-time great, which Mats Vlander, um, at least at the Grand Slams, is, it's ridiculous. It's, it's absurd. I don't even know if I want to address it. But uh, Andy Murray has has earned wild cards for basic. Anyway, I don't know. Andy Murray has done more for the game than any of the wild cards that he's taking away from any of the young players can will possibly ever do for the game. I mean, can I leave it at that? I can probably list ten reasons why Andy Murray deserves a wild card. Ten reasons. Now, you have the aftermath of this where. Kyrios and Mats Vlander kind of go at it. And look, I mean, Nick is going to stand up for his guy, uh, Murray. Uh, Nick is extraordinarily loyal to his his friends on tour and him and Muzz, as he'd call them. They have a good relationship. So Kyrgios is going to go out there, defend his guy, and, and that was fine. I was uh, pretty bothered, though, by um, Kyrgios going at Karen Hatchinov after that. And uh, if you didn't see it, Hatchinov basically asked Kyrgios to have more respect. He he was upset that that Kyrgios called out Vlander as harshly as he did, and then they went back and forth a couple times, and all was fine and well. Then Kyrgios called out Hatchinov for poor English, and English is not Karen's you know first language. So and and it is Nick. So that that's such a low blow, and it's just it's out of bounds and. It just makes Nick look so, you know, it makes Nick, he lost, he lost that one. He, he, he certainly lost me there. I mean, anyone who speaks multiple languages deserves no flack. This one is from Afola. Two related uh, Rafa questions here, Gail. One, forehand down the line. There's always a lot of talk about the forehand down the line as a barometer of Rafa's confidence. Why does Rafa need to be particularly confident when he's able to play routine forehands down the line? Well, this is true for for every player. It's the higher part of the net, you have less court to hit into, and the timing is more difficult as long as uh, assuming that you're redirecting the ball. It's always easier to hit the ball the same direction that it's coming from. So whenever you're talking about redirecting the ball, um, it is going to be a little bit harder to time. And then you have the the geometry is more difficult. So to say that Nadal needs more confidence to take his forehand down the line, so does everybody else. Everybody else, I assure you, needs more confidence to go down the line. It's a lot easier to go cross court. Um, now... I would say when it comes to his stroke mechanics, which I know that you asked me about in the next uh, question, I think it also requires Nadal to hit uh, a flatter shot in order for it to, to be effective. I think the, the biggest barometer of Nadal's confidence on his forehand is not so much the directionals. 
It's more so how much is he mixing up his spin? And that is to say that he he will always hit heavy topspin forehands, but is he is he flattening the ball out as well? And that's the best barometer of his confidence, probably better than his forehand down the line. Because if he takes his forehand down the line and he hits it spinny, he's not he's not getting anywhere anyways. Uh, that's just not gonna, you know, y- you need some you need some pace and s- some depth if you're gonna take your forehand down the line and try to try to build and break your opponent's contact point off that shot. So so that's that's um, that's how I view that dynamic. The next one is forehand defense. When Rafa is pulled out wide to his left, 99% of the time his reply is short and cross-court. Do you think he's unable to place defensive forehand shots down the line because of his confidence, or is it more related to his stroke mechanics? Well, uh, it also has to do with intention. So if he's being pulled to his left out wide, and he feels that he's in a defensive uh, position, um... That's that's a scenario where his intention is oftentimes to defend, and then there are a lot of advantages for him to defend cross court. One normally goes to the the weaker righty backhand. You you do have kind of the um, the lower part of the net and more court to hit into, and you're trying to play a safer ball because you're in a defensive position where you're you're bound to not have the same kind of precision on your shot. Um, and then the next part is your ability to recover. And the ball is actually traveling a further distance before it gets to your opponent, which gives you more time to recover to the middle. And you're making your opponent redirect if they want to hit um, into the open court. So if, if you'll visualize this, Nadal is pulled out wide on the ad side of the court. If he goes down the line, well, now the open court, it's still the deuce side. But you allow a righty to hit a forehand cross court. And uh, it's a pretty easy ball to time because you don't really need to redirect it. You know, you just um, you just got to kind of pull it, to, to use a baseball term. If you go cross court, at least you're making, especially the righty backhand, hit a, hit a backhand on the line. So that's why you'll see him go cross court in a defensive position when he's pulled out wide on his forehand side. Another part of it is stroke mechanics um, because the later Nadal catches the ball in his hitting zone, the more likely he is to kind of use the buggy whip forehand um, if he doesn't catch it out front, out in front. And if he's going to use the buggy whip forehand, he's probably going to do that high loopy cross court. Again, going down the line, he defends down the line on his backhand very often, but on his forehand... Mostly the advantages are cross-court. The depth is what's really important on that shot. And against the best opponents, Nadal really needs to work hard to try to get good depth on that shot. Generally, he's much better on clay, um, and he gets more of a kick off the court with his topspin, than he is on quicker and lower bouncing surfaces. On this surface, it's going to be really important that when Nadal is put in his forehand corner that he hits with depth. Man, is that going to be essential. So watch out for that because if he can't get it done there, it's going to be a problem. 
The next comment is from Rahul. Hi, Gil. Want to ask you a couple questions. One, in your French Open prediction video, your quarterfinal predictions were Nadal's Zverev, Team Schwartzman, Djokovic, Berrettini, Shapo, Rublev. Putting Shapovalov aside since he lost, which of these quarterfinal predictions are you least confident about? It's a good question. Um, hmm. It's got to be the the Rublev Tsitsipas quarter is by far the quarter which I'm least confident about and most uncertain. Because, again, I really think the play has been very physical out here. And for that reason, I just don't think it's a good thing that they played five sets in their first round after playing the full week in Hamburg. So, again, I favor Andre Rublev. And I think he also has the firepower and the level to possibly play some quick matches here to, to make up for his first round match. But ultimately, those are the players who I'm worried about. And in terms of Tsitsipas's form, I also think that he's been a little bit prone to kind of error-filled stretches. So it's not the most consistent. Anyway, that's the area. That's the quarter, which I'm least confident about. Second one from Rahul here is uh, about your final weekend prediction. Seeing that you have picked Nadal to win his 13th Roland Garros, what do you think from a technical standpoint Dominic Team and Novak Djokovic need to do to increase their chances of beating him? And why do you believe they will not do it given that those two have split the biggest tournaments this year? I want to go too in-depth on the second part of the question, but I think from a technical standpoint, it's mostly that Dominic Team needs to... I think the reason he would beat Nadal is because he would be the more dominant player physically. And I think we, we'd, we've even seen that in some best-of-three matchups between Nadal and Team, where it's actually Team who is defending better, moving better, and hitting his forehand bigger. I mean, it's very simple. Those are the three things that Team can have going for him. And if he's consistent enough in every other area, those things can really just ride him to victory. For Djokovic against Nadal, for Novak, it's... To me, it's mostly about just um, having access to big hitting off of his forehand side. It needs to be his forehand needs to be heavy. He needs to loosen his shoulders, and then on the topspin backhand, he needs to have his timing there, where he's hitting his backhand down the line with precision, and and he's hitting that shot well. He's don't, doing those two things. If if his shoulders are really kind of loosened up and he's getting good pop on his forehand, and he's hitting his backhand with great precision and moving Nadal around the court, those are probably Djokovic's keys to victory. Uh, let's see. I'm only going to do a couple more here. Here's one from Roger. Gil, loved your show. Do you feel like the team masterclass against Rude makes him the favorite to win Roland Garros? Before the tournament, you stated you feel team's best performance will be good enough to win, and it looks like he can reach that level. Well, a couple things. One, you know, impressive victory against Rude. I didn't catch as much of that as I'd like. It started at 5 a.m. here. Uh, but Schwartzman's really tough. He's going to be tough. Schwartzman is the exact kind of player who I think is having a ton, tons of success here. He's going to keep the ball on the court. He is willing to run. He he loves playing on the run. 
And I just think that can be a, a real dogfight. So, again, with, with Team coming in with all of the physical and mental baggage of, of what he just did only two weeks ago in New York, combined with what could be a really tough quarterfinal, that's where I don't know if he'll have 100% for the semifinal. Those, that, that's my thoughts. This one from Siam, though the path is very difficult for Stan Wawrinka to reach the final, if he somehow manages... Oh, this is a Stan question. I shouldn't answer this. Woo! Okay. <laughs> Tough. 420 Benton, what's happened to Kyrgios? Has he retired or something? No, he just doesn't really feel like traveling. He's, he's chilling in Australia. Paul Thomas, how far can Schwartzman go in the tournament? Uh, potentially, potentially the semifinal, at least. Uh, what are your thoughts on Lorenzo Massetti? He, you know, he's a little, and I think I spoke about him briefly, right, already. But he needs to get a little bigger, a little more physical. But I love his skills and his game. That That's all great. But from a physical standpoint, he's not, you know, he's, he's not a top 50 pro yet. He's kind of a, he's still a, in sort of a, a junior's body. And if, if, if you can't serve big and you're not overly physical, it's just going to be tough for you at the highest level. But he's got all the foundationals and, and the fundamentals. So I love him. I think, you know, he seems great. How deep can Mar Martin Fuksovich go? Another thing, uh, it's again, he's a great mover. He's in unbelievable shape. He might be a top 10 athlete on tour. He is so well-conditioned, durable, and fit. So for that reason, I think uh, he can go very far. And he's got a good draw, doesn't he, right? Yeah, he's got Montero in the next round. And then he's got the winner of uh, Kevin Anderson and Andre Rublev. So, yeah, look out. Look out for Martin. How many more do we got here? Um, Djokovic to the final is a foregone conclusion. Your views. Let's see who comes out of that. Um, let's see who comes out of the quarter. Let's let's hold our horses there. However, let me say this. Berrettini against Djokovic in the quarterfinal. I don't think that goes very well for Matteo. In fact, I just based on how things are going here, even Berrettini's forehand probably will uh, will struggle to hit through Djokovic's defenses. So I see that potentially getting ugly. So I will throw that out there. But semifinals, I don't know. Let's let's see who comes out of there. Do you think it's fair that lower-ranked players have to play in the rain while higher-ranked players get to play under a roof? That's just kind of a, a moot point. Who has a better chance to beat Djokovic, Rublev or Tsitsipas? That's a good question. It might be Tsitsipas, even though I think Rublev is more likely to get there. Just because... Tsitsipas has, he he serves better. Um, so I, I do think that Rublev would probably get exposed pretty badly on his second serve against Novak. So Tsitsipas serves better. And I think that because of Stefanos' net play and his transition game, I just see him having a lot more success uh, against Novak offensively than, than potentially Andre Rublev. So I actually think Tsitsipas. And I think that is it. I'm going to skim through these. 
one more time just to make sure I'm not missing anything I really like. Uh, thoughts on the ranking system now? Hard for lower rankers, rank uh, lower ranked players to climb when players above them don't drop points. This is true, but you come up with a better system. I mean, I I think that they came. I think that they the whole thing where you don't drop points. That's the only system that I think the ATP could have gone with and the WTA as well, because you can't punish players for not wanting to travel. Even more so, you can't punish players if their countries prohibit them from traveling uh, or other countries prohibit travel from the country. You get the picture. With COVID-19 with COVID and the difficulties with traveling, you cannot put players in a situation where, where they are punished for not being able to play tournaments. You can't. You just can't. All right, I think that will do it. Again, a really big thank you for everyone who commented. I do believe 100 comments is a record, and I appreciate that. Uh, remember, Monday Match Analysis and The Mailbag are available on all your favorite podcast platforms, and it is a huge help, and it is much appreciated if you leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and the link to that is in the description. Please don't forget to like. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.